Welcome to Open Book Unbound. Hi Marjorie, how are you this morning? Can't believe we're at podcast three already. The weeks are flying by. I know. I'm sitting in my in a new office this morning, so it's a bit of funny space. But it's bright, and at least it's not raining, and I've already had a run around the meadow, so I can't really complain. How about you? Have you had a busy morning already? Well, my children have decided that they're going to camp in the garden tonight, so <laughs> that should either be harmonious, team-building, joyful experience, or total meltdown. Are you taking lots as to what time in the middle of the night they'll be back in the house? I'm definitely not sleeping in the garden, so I'm hoping I, I won't hear anything and I'll wake up in the morning and everyone's had a wonderful time and it's been great fun. Great. Well, I can't wait to hear about it. So this week's podcast are three separate pieces. We're reading A Tale of Two Cities by Yi Yun Lee, Harlem by Langston Hughes, and Late Fragment by Raymond Carver. Shall we just kick off into the story? Yeah, let's do that. A Tale of Two Cities. In a certain city in Florida, in the bars... There are young women sitting on high stools, and if an older man is interested in one of them, he asks the bartender to send over a cigar, and accepting the cigar, the chosen woman also accepts drinks and a few hours of companionship. Bolin couldn't remember who had told him this. He himself had not set foot in that country. In the restaurant or the karaoke bar or the spa or wherever he'd heard the story, the men and women in Florida sounded as though they lived in an old-fashioned fairy tale, innocent in their roguishness and mischief. Once in a while, Balin imagined himself the man in that fairy tale, taking his time, caressing every young woman's face with his eyes. At the end of the night, he might, or might not, make a move. The young women had their whole lives ahead of them. To match their patience and confidence, he too needed to be an unhurried person. But that calmness he could only have in his imagination. The young women in the places he frequented with his business connections, misses they were called, were uniformly well-trained and they left little space for his fairy tale. They always seemed to know what he needed. Sometimes they had much more to offer than he was willing to accept. His own wife, whom he'd married 27 years ago, but had known all his life. Their cribs had been next to each other when they'd started the little sunflower nursery. He no longer loved. She was not in a position to protest about that, as he'd set her boutique shop specializing in high-end stationery imported from Japan. And he had shown magnanimity when he discovered her affair with her chauffeur. Sometimes she said that it wasn't healthy for a man of his age to be out drinking every night, masking with wifely concerns her unhappiness with the marriage. He had no other choice, he replied, sparing her his belief that he maintained his lifestyle so that their daughter, from whom he'd secured a job of writing restaurant reviews for a leading fashion magazine in Beijing, would not have to make a living like the young women he patronized. Can we stop there, maybe? I'm not sure I'm liking him. <laughs> He sounds a bit lonely, though, doesn't he? He sounds a bit sad, I think. This sort of hanging out in bars with women the age of his daughter. What worries me is this idea that he has a fantasy about someone else's fantasy. So the fantasy is about the story he's heard about Florida, a place he's never even been. You know, so it's not even his own fantasy or one that he could make come true. It's just... He's dreaming off the back of someone else's crazy story, if that makes sense. I guess that's just, though, as the story says, a, a fairy tale, isn't it? Adopting a fairy tale and putting yourself in the fairy tale. I guess in the way little kids do, you know, when they want to be the princess who gets rescued. Yeah, I guess. 
And I wonder too, in the way of using the words fairy tale, is this all a kind of euphemism for what we think it is? Are these women who are simply just accepting a cigar and some drinks and for companionship, or is it something else? I kind of assumed it was something else, but maybe it's not. Maybe it is literally just the drinks and the companionship. I don't know. It seems too good to be true, if that makes sense for the women, to just hang out in bar. And why would you hang out in a bar all night? hoping that someone would buy you a drink by the end of the night. And more importantly, a cigar. (laughs) I'm not a cigar smoker. Are you a cigar smoker? No, me neither. Yeah, exactly. But he seems really like this idea that he's taking his time, caressing every young woman's face with his eyes. It's like he enjoys the picking more than the, the actual whatever's coming next. Yeah, and I think that's followed up with the bit where it says to match their patience and confidence he too needed to be an unhurried person. He doesn't want to hurry. He doesn't want to rush to the next stage of whatever's going to happen. Like the joy of the evening is actually that not knowing where it's going to end rather than know. And it seems, I suppose, the bit that comes after that, the discussion of the women that he does see, the idea that they're they're well-trained and they leave very little for his own fairy tale means that maybe it is the unknown that he's after. I think the way that it's written, though, it just conveys so clearly such a sense of just seediness and discomfort. Mm. And when you try and pin down where that comes from and what language that creates, that's quite hard to pick it out. I think it's just really well crafted to create the atmosphere that I think she wants us to pick up on, that the whole thing's just a little bit seedy. And also, what do we think of the wife? She's complaining. She's having an affair. And the idea that she has nothing to complain about because she's got her own boutique. It tells us more about him, I think, than it does about her, really. I wonder if it's about a contract between people, you know, and he feels he's sort of fulfilling his part of the contract, which is to give her her shop and deal with her revelation of infidelity in a reasonable way. Yeah, and I wonder if we're imposing our cultural understanding of what a marriage and a relationship should be. The fact that there are so many more men because of the single child policy than there are women changes the view of women in a way that they're more prized or yes well the idea that you know he believes that he's maintaining his lifestyle for his daughter's sake because he's put her up in this fashion magazine in beijing you know so i suppose that kind of helps that idea that women are to be prized and to be allowed to do whatever they want so they're just accessories or expensive handbags things to be looked after but not necessarily on par with you, if that makes sense. It feels quite traditional, doesn't it? Or quite old-fashioned. Yeah. Really. Maybe in the way that you might find have found in the 50s or earlier in the US, or I don't know about the UK, but you know, that kind of old-fashioned, the job, the job of the man is to work and to keep the woman happy. Shall we keep going and see, see what we make of the next bit? Yeah. Only a man who understands love can come up with this genius idea. Such were the compliments paid to Bolan by his subordinates when, to advertise a new development he and his partner had built on the southern end of the sprawling metropolis, he proposed a carousel riding contest. One lucky couple, they had to be young and struggling to find a place to live in Beijing, who could beat all rivals to ride for the longest time on a carousel, would take home, or rather would make a home of, a two-bedroom apartment. Anything he proposed would be called a genius idea, Bolin knew, but this time he did love his own proposal. Very soon, the contest and its logo, Love and Persistence Win, were printed in major newspapers. He imagined the clichés, which he especially loved. The maudlin love songs from the loudspeakers, the colourful lights lit up at night, 
the ups and downs of the young contestants, each couple sharing a wooden horse or a camel and burying whatever differences or disagreements they had in the relationship for the dream of having an unaffordable apartment. Bolin himself had worked all sorts of low jobs at their age. Not in every dynasty or every country could a man have made it as he had done. But of this he knew not to brag, as he had done nothing special. He was born at the right time and in the right place, and had recognised and acted upon a certain vague call to wealth when it was barely noticeable to most people. Take that sometimes when he was drunk, he thought of the men in the Floridian bar. Now whose fairy tale was better written? The contest began on the seventh day of the seventh month of the lunar calendar. A day associated with a love story from folklore, which had been recently revived for commercial reasons, and was called the Chinese Valentine's Day. Before the first spin of the carousels, there had been much publicity generated. The amusement park which hosted the contest had installed new carousels in addition to the five they already had. Hundreds of young couples camped overnight in line to register for the contest. The eruptions of arguments and shedding of tears by those whom the amusement park could not accommodate were reported in the newspapers. All went as planned. Among the excitement and chaos, one girl's story caught Bolin's attention. A recent graduate from university and a new arrival in the city, she broke up with her boyfriend of three years when he had refused to make himself a clown to amuse some rich men's nonsense, as the newspaper quoted him. She advertised on her blog for a new boyfriend, with the stamina and determination to win an apartment with her. And even that became a contest of itself. Her well-publicised first dates with her candidates fanned the PR fire for the contest. Has your view of him changed in this little bit? I think he's still quite creepy, <laughs> quite manipulative. I think we get a better sense of what he's sort of seen as in society, because when he says anything he proposed would be called a genius idea, suddenly I think, oh, he's a kind of big character in the society. He's not just someone who thinks well of himself, but if he's someone who can make this sort of thing happen, then obviously he's a well-known character. He's a kind of Trump-like character. And I think the way he thinks of himself as well feeds our, that idea for us. You know, he sort of says not everyone could have done what he'd done, although he does acknowledge that he was in the right place at the right time. But I think he does give himself a fair amount of credit for getting himself to the position he has done. And that, that line about take that, he thinks when he's had too much to drink to the, the Floridian men makes me think he's insecure. He's still, you know, even though he's wildly successful, those who are sort of confident in their success don't still need to go back to people they think of, they used to think of as great and prove that. It feels in some way it's a kind of like, I've made it, take that. The first time I read this, I thought he was in some way trying to help a young couple get their foot on the ladder and sort of following his footsteps and making something of themselves. But reading it again, it comes across much more strongly to me that he's just doing it for his own purposes and for the PR and for his company, his property company. And, and what do we make of this woman? The idea that, you know, you suddenly discover that you're not compatible with your boyfriend because one of you is willing to do something outrageous or, well, maybe make expose yourself. 
itself isn't something we would necessarily have learned about 10 years ago because people weren't asked to do that in a way that I think social media suddenly asks us to be much more public about our private lives. I think if you're, inv if you're yeah. involved in social media, you are required in some ways to tell people something about yourself that you wouldn't otherwise do. And that might flesh out differences that maybe we just didn't know before. It's different to turn up to a dinner party and tell people your stories than it is to put it out on social media for everybody to see forever. Yeah. But I love the fact that she dumps him. Shall, well, shall we read to the end and see what see what happens? See whether yeah. she gets what she wants? Yeah. I'm kind of rooting for her. I don't know about you, but I, I like her get up and go. Maybe it's just in contrast to him. You know, maybe I wouldn't like her in real life, but anyway. Balin wanted the young woman to win. She was not the prettiest, and the boy she'd chosen was not the most handsome, but Balin loved her face, where youthful dreams had died before their time, and signs of suffering from a life she was too young to understand had not yet set in. He could have given her, through the PR company, a small amount of money for more presentable clothes in front of the TV crews and photographers, but that, on his part, would be a preemptive move of impatience. The contest, in the end, was one of those fairy tales that went slightly wrong. For days, the carousel spun from morning till midnight, with three ten-minute breaks built in for the contestants to rest. Every day, more couples dropped out with paled faces, but there were the persistent ones who had to be peeled off the wooden animals with a guarantee they could resume the next day. On the seventh day, it was apparent that the eight couples would only drop out when death interfered. The company quoted health and humanitarian concerns to end the contest without deciding a winner. It had gathered enough coverage, in any case, and each of the eight couples would get a check for 20,000 yen as their prize, a decent move on the company's part as the combined total was the price of an apartment on their list. Balin often thought about the girl who had not won the apartment, sometimes as a father, though a father would be more heartbroken than he himself felt, sometimes as an older man would have thought of the young women on their high stools. Had they been living in one of those old-fashioned fairy tales, he would have seen to it that a cigar, a drink, a small offering be passed to her, but they were not in Florida, where palm trees clamored with their long, finger-like leaves. They were in a city called Beijing, where, as a young man, he had planted trees that later, as a real estate developer, he'd ordered to be removed. Ooh, that's a creepy ending, isn't it? Balin, thinking about the girl who'd not won the apartment often, that again starts to make me feel a bit creeped out by him. Oh, yeah, I hadn't picked up on that. Why is he still thinking about her? Maybe it's okay because he does it as a father. And the father references that the father would have been more heartbroken than he himself felt. And why heartbroken? Because she didn't win? Or I mean, my reference is thinking about my Persian father. He would have been heartbroken of me publicizing my first dates with a bunch of men. <laughs> Unless it was at his daughter's disappointment at not winning. Probably relief at getting off that carousel. <laughs> I was thinking I would be sick. I'd be feeling travel sick, going round oh, yeah. and round and round for days. I wonder too, because actually what, it's just occurred to me that we never really hear her. You know, she comes into this story, there's really only a paragraph about her and the way that she kind of tries to find someone to go with her. And then it's really about his response to her, how he wants her to win. And this whole seedy thing about 
what she's wearing and how he could have given her nicer clothes or found a way to give her a bit of money to wear nicer clothes, but he doesn't. So again, I wonder, it feels like a fairy tale. She doesn't really, even though the story is about her, it doesn't really, we don't hear what happens to her. We don't hear what the impact was. It's not about her at all. We don't even actually know if she's one of the eight couples left. No, and she doesn't have a name. So it's all about like, she only exists in relation to his response to her. It's almost like he set her up as something to respond to. And so that makes me think, does she actually exist? I mean, is he, has he come up with this whole thing himself? Because the whole language of fairy tales makes me wonder if she's even a real person. But he's you know? treating her the same way as he treats the girls in the bars. Yeah. Sort of objectifying her and using her and thinking about her from his perspective. We never get a sense of him having any empathy for any of the other people. You're right. And it's and for me, it's all about power rather than about action. So he's not actually doing anything or imagining doing anything with these women in the bars. He's just imagining being able to. And here, he doesn't actually give her the money for the clothes. He just knows that he's he could have, he's able. And the same with the end, you know, that he yeah. he's thinking, oh, I sometimes think of her as a father or sometimes as an older man. For me, the story isn't so much about the spectacle as the person, sad character, really, the sad sack who puts it on for his own entertainment. It's seedy, but it's sort of asking the question about why, what it, what is it we want to see in other people? And is that a kind of power or something? I don't know. And then, you know, the last line really underlines yeah. that for me, that idea that you could be required to do something and then because of power, you can rip it out yourself. There's some, I always remember, I don't know why that, there's a line in Pretty Women where the character said he enjoyed getting his father back by becoming so wealthy that he could buy up all his father's businesses and then just shut them all down. That feels that same kind of power. Like, you know, I'm powerful enough now to undo what I had to do as a young man. So again, it's just, yeah, that, that ending makes it feel like it's not about relationships between men and women, but about our relationship with the rest of the world. So... And for me, for me as well, that that ending had a sense of a circle about it. The whole thing has a feeling of being circular. I guess the carousels are pretty self-evident, but that whole cycle of planting trees and removing the trees and planting the trees and removing the trees, kind of that yeah. ending just echoes that sense of going round in circles. And and you're right, because the, the bars in Florida are a kind of carousel, right? Night after night. Right. Um, and in fun, it's funny that it's the inverse of what's happening on the actual carousel, because those are only happening during the day. But night after night, people are getting on those carousels, sitting on a stool, waiting for something to happen, and then going home and then doing it again. So it's, a, you know, maybe it's pointing out that we're all in kind of types of carousels that we seem unable to break. And I suppose even his relationships with the other seedy women are kind of carousel that he doesn't seem to be able to break. You know, he doesn't be able to ask for more space in his fairy tale. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, you're right. So is this a good moment to switch to a poem? Yeah, I'm going to read the first poem. We've got two today. It's called Harlem by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over? like a syrupy sweet. Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? I love the ending of that poem. On the print version, it's in italics. Kind of needs yeah. to be, doesn't it, that line? 
Yeah. And the first line, what happens to a dream deferred is all the way left and everything else is like possible answers to the right, which makes sense. I don't know what the, I think it's a lovely question to pose. I don't know that we have the answer for it, but I thought, I thought it mixed well with the story because the question is, what's the dream, you know, in that story is when I was looking for a poem, I was thinking, whose dream are we talking about in that story? Is it hers or is it his? What was he looking for? I was a bit surprised that the only things that the poet thinks could happen to a dream deferred are nasty or horrible things. Whereas I was kind of thinking sometimes it's actually quite nice not to attain your dream because the reality of what you think your dream is doesn't match what it actually is. I remember once meeting an author that I'd particularly admired for a long time and afterwards wishing that I hadn't met her because my bubble was kind of burst. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but it's a bit like booking a holiday, you know, sort of nine months in advance. I feel like often the run up to knowing you're going to go, or for example, when I book flights to go to the States, the first time I did that for after years, I did it in March with a plan to go in August. And those months and running up to it were almost as joyful as the trip itself. So yeah, I think sometimes the joy is in aiming for something rather than the thing itself. Yeah, I I mean, I think deferred gratification is a concept that younger people don't have so much experience of. We've been talking a wee bit about that in our house. Marvin and I are watching the Mallory Towers series and we're watching it you know, one episode and then a few days delay because there's only 13 being recorded. And she was asking me the other week about what it was like when I was a kid. And I was explaining to her that when it was a series, you saw one a week. I remember watching Heidi, a BBC version of Heidi, and it was on on a Thursday and you had to wait till the next Thursday, you know, before you got the next episode. And and she just found that whole concept of not having the choice to just watch the whole thing uh, totally foreign. Even now, when they when people release sort of things one at a time, it feels really unusual. But sort of five years ago, that was unthinkable. You know, we watched West Wing that way. We watched Downton Abbey that way. And it was lovely in the sense that everybody piled in in front of the TV on a particular night. It was a reason to get together because, you know, everybody ordered their pizza or did whatever they were doing and then got together, which was really nice. So, yeah, it's funny how the world has, has changed. But, yeah, I think you're right. I don't necessarily recognize Langston Hughes's um, language here. But then I think he's talking about, you know, something different. He's talking about race relations and the idea yeah. of the power of African-Americans and equal rights and a different thing. So I think when you put it in a political context. Yeah. And that echo of that I have a dream speech. Yeah, as well, obviously comes through when you said it in that context. And I wonder too, whether the last line there sort of nods, I don't know about Hughes's view, but nods to that idea of power and violence in a way, um, without actually specifically saying that, but certainly things like Raisin in the Sun harkens back to sort of the the literary vision of um, African Americans and also, yeah. you know, the idea of rotten meat. Those that's that's very laden this poem with those kinds of images. And and the sugar as well, obviously. The... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a heavy load, you know, the the language yeah, yeah, and the words yeah. heavy load are very sort of emotive of a particular time and place. So let's swap over to the, the last poem, sure. shall we? Um, which is a little tiny one, which I love and think it's one that we should all keep in mind all the time. It's the Raymond Carver's late fragment. And did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved? To feel myself beloved on the earth? So, I mean, I I think I picked this little guy because I, 
I think Bolin doesn't get what he wanted, you know, despite having everything. Or at least that's my perception. That's obviously me projecting my thinking that he wants to be loved. And I don't know Raymond Carver as a poet at all. I obviously know his, sh- his short stories. I think you could tell it was Carver if mm-hmm. you didn't know. Because well, Carver is notorious for having these long stories that are edited and edited down so that they're this yeah. kind of little wisps of themselves or... Um, wisps is probably not the right word. It's a kind of skeleton of itself, really. So that as a reader, you're really forced to fill in all the blanks and decide for yourself. And it makes me think of reading Carver with a group of men in Lomas prison. His work was requested by them, which I found fascinating. And it's remarkable because every guy in the room had a different view about what was happening in the story. So he is someone that our, our groups really engage with because of these big holes. But I don't think there are that many holes in this little poem. I don't know if you do. Not so much holes in the sense that he tells you what happens, but there's certainly big thinking spaces. That question, did you get what you wanted from this life? Like you, you kind of have to stop and think, well, did I? What did I want from this life? Before you allow yourself to go on to read the next line of the poem. But even then, for me, the next two words are even more interesting because I think, you know, did you get what you wanted is something you might ask someone on their deathbed or yeah. you know, certainly in midlife or whatever, but even so hints at something else, which is, it hints at the fact that you might not have, you know, that there's something about the, the speaker or the person being spoken to that would sense that you'd say no, the answer would be no, if that makes sense. But yeah. it sort of flips, it flips the question, I think, in a way, from being a positive one to a kind of despite it, despite question. It turns you in on yourself. So you're coming, you're coming to the poem thinking, right, what's he going to tell me about himself? What am I going to learn from what he writes in this poem? What's it going to make me think about? And then the next minute you're thinking, gosh, did I? What did I want? If I did get it, what was it? And if I didn't, why not? And then I don't know what the last bit is. You know, I've, I've read this so many times and assumed that what he's saying is he wants to feel loved or beloved. But then looking at it again, to call myself beloved, to call myself beloved is an interesting one isn't it? Like that, those sort of four words, is it that you want to love yourself rather than be loved? I'd always assumed it meant that you want to be loved. But to call myself beloved is an interesting little line, I think. I think it flips you back out again, though, doesn't it? From thinking about yourself and what you wanted, it flips you out to examining what other people thought of you and felt about you. Yeah, I agree. But the, the language before it, I think, is about him thinking that of himself, So what he wanted is to to love himself and then to feel that other people loved him too, which are two different things. We quite often give our own sense of self away in order to be loved by other people, or that sometimes happens. But I don't know, you don't see it that way. Yeah, no, for me, it's to call myself beloved is to tell other people that people love me. Hmm, That's a nice way of thinking about it. You know, to be able to tell other people that I am loved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, linking it back to the story, I don't think, I think our main character in the story doesn't have that no. at all, right? And neither does the woman who's interviewing people to try and get in a flat with. So I think the answer for everybody in there is no, even though Balin, the most powerful one, has the ability to plant trees and take them out. Maybe he's getting what he wants. I was going to say, I wonder if he would say he got what he wanted. Maybe that's right. Maybe that last line of the story helps us see that that was what he wanted. And then this is just a different version of what you wanted, what someone else wants. The title of this one jumped out for me as well. Mm. Late fragment. Is it late in the day before you go to bed? Is it late in life? 
Mm-hmm. Is it too late? <laughs> you know. And fragment is obviously makes me think it's part of a larger conversation, you know, that he's either having with himself or someone else or yeah, that it's only just like a parenthetical really. An important one, but a parenthetical and something much bigger and longer. Yeah. Which I think we recognize, you know, you might ask yourself this question and then move on. And the answer might be different on different days or at different times. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Right, shall we leave it there for this let's, week? Yeah, let's do that. And shall we catch up with what's been happening elsewhere in Open Book? We've had a really busy week with groups and lots of feedback and um, people reaching out from all over the place, haven't we, Claire? Yeah, it's been a really good week. Lots of people sending on the newsletter to friends, family, groups they're involved with. And we're really delighted to see that. So please do keep sending it on. We know this week that the newsletters made it as far as Italy, Belgium, Australia, and the US. Yeah, so if you have friends in weird and wonderful places, send it on to them. We'll see who we, where we get to next week. It'd be fun to see how far we can get. We've also had some groups this week, which we'll get into in a minute. But um, what has been really nice is to have people from all over the place joining together on these Zoom groups. So I had a Zoom group yesterday that included someone from London, lots of people in Scotland, someone up in Orkney. So that was really fun. So we're learning that this new way of doing things has benefits too, because we're so used to doing things in person, but we're loving doing it this way too. One bit of feedback that we got, which I thought might be worth chatting about, is one person felt that the woman in the story, the blue dress woman who we were so disparaging of just might have been just lonely didn't know how else to kind of garner attention and just wanted to find a way to reach out to people so she was doing that I suspect by being well, what I thought was rude I don't know what you make of that Claire I think that's a bit of a charitable take on things there's definitely more than just loneliness I think she was verging on unkind but it did make me go back and reread it and have a think about her again so that's the really brilliant thing about getting different people's opinions and, and different input on the stories and the poems is that it, it does make you think about what you've been reading in a different way, which I yeah. really like. And you know what they say about kids, you know, who are misbehaving, that any attention is a t- good attention. So, you know, and I'm sure we all know that very well in pandemic times. So one thing that everyone seemed to agree on this week was uh, the barking dog. I think the barking dog was universally loved across uh, all yeah. our group readers. Although I did have someone in the Zoom group yesterday who had joined us last week as well, who said she was a bit worried that we had chosen it because her dog had barked very loudly through <laughs> our Zoom session last week and she'd had to go on mute and get him out of the room. I reassured her we had picked the poem long before she had been part of the Zoom session with her barking dog. That makes me laugh because in my session yesterday, which was all about music, we had this person who had music on in the background the whole time. And you could tell everybody knew when she was muted or when she was on because you could hear this beautiful classical music. I couldn't bear to ask her to turn it off. I just said, please, could you mute so we can all hear? So that's funny. Um, One of the things I thought was really interesting is we got lots of comments about the Sassoon. Everybody sang a poem about how it made them think about the NHS and clapping for the NHS. Um, One person said it would be nice to of actually have people singing but that in Britain people are too reserved for that. I think one of my favourite comments was from an open tweeter who is also a dentist who thought we were talking far too much about sweets and sugary snacks. (laughs) Non-sugar snacks please in the future it just made me laugh she obviously doesn't know me very well. Um, One of the things I wanted to mention that happened that was really wonderful yesterday in our Zoom creative writing group too was we were talking about the Sassoon and this idea of the, the word delight comes up in it. 
And we were talking about the contrast between feeling delight in a period of what would have been war for him and the kind of the kind of guilt or the kind of feelings that that might bring up. Like, oh, you know, how, how do you feel when you feel delight in a time when you know you're meant to be sad? And the group was really discussing how that happens over and over again in the current period when you feel something joyful or even, you know, spring and Edinburgh anyway is kind of bursting out around us. Quite often when I see the blossom and I think, oh, that's so beautiful. And then I think, oh, I shouldn't really be thinking about that. That kind of contrast between something really wonderful happening in a dark time and how that makes us feel. So there's a really lovely, um, robust conversation that happened around that, which was, which was terrific. Yeah, and I had some lovely comments in my group as well relating to the Sassoon poem. And one in particular that stayed with me was someone said that, you know, when she read it, it made her just want to look up look up to the birds and look up to the sky and she says she just got such a moment of peace and enjoyment from doing that in a way that she felt she'd been looking down and you know really sort of quite closed in but this just let her open up and look up and I thought that was a a really nice um, positive and uplifting thought to to take away from that poem. Yeah, I think the groups have been remarkable in, I know we both have had this experience, which happens so often in person too, that you just learn so much about text you might already know. It's that thing of being in a room with other people and seeing things that you never would have seen if you just read it for yourself, or as we often do, read it and then come together later to talk about it. So yeah, there's been real joy this week in these groups, and we really hope you will join us um, in the coming weeks on a shared reading group or a creative writing group or whatever whatever suits your fancy or get back in touch with us and tell us what you think about what Claire and I have been talking about because we love these little feedbacks particularly you can tell us when we're wrong one of the comments that was funny I thought was that Claire and I apparently need to find more things that we disagree about so we'll work on that I think that's all from us this week at Open Book Unbound thanks for having us in your ears And uh, we can't wait to hear from you and come back to you soon.